Our sermon text from today is from Mark chapter 2, chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of the thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Confidence is a beautiful thing to watch, isn't it? It's wonderful to watch people doing what they do best confidently. Now, I'm yet to witness greater confidence than what I see on a daily basis as I drive down University Boulevard over here and have to come to a halt and allow the dear FIT students to cross from one side of the campus to the other. Sorry, friends. We're glad you're here, but I have to rank on you a little bit. But that's okay because I'll buy you lunch. I mean, they cross that street as though they were invincible. It's like we're not even there. The cars are not even there. It's amazing, incredible confidence. But you know what I've noticed? I've noticed that their confidence depends on the size of the group that is crossing the streets. When the, when the group is large, their confidence is high. When there's only a few of them, their confidence is low. When there's only one of them, their confidence is gone. Not that I have put that theory to the test or anything. But you know what they say, there's confidence in numbers. Our confidence in life is often derived from whether or not others have confidence in us. 
But Jesus shows us something different. He was often surrounded by a crowd. He lived for three years with 12 disciples. But his confidence was never derived from them or their opinion. Jesus' confidence rested on the fact that he knew he was accomplishing the mission the Father had appointed him to do. And because of this, because of Christ's confidence, therefore, the gospel has increased. Because Christ was confident, the gospel was displayed through his life. Because Christ was confident, the gospel was commissioned to his disciples. And because Christ was confident, the gospel was accomplished by him, by himself, giving up his own life. So this is our outline for today. The gospel displayed, the gospel commissioned, and the gospel accomplished. So let's consider the gospel displayed. Come and see. That's the message of Christ. Come and see. For the past several weeks... Mark's narrative has been filled with action. In every story, we've met individuals or groups of individuals who interact with Jesus. And the narrative itself tells us whether they interact with Jesus properly or not. We're about to change pace a little bit. In the chapters ahead, we're still going to feel the speed, the quick shifts, we're still going to hear that word euthos immediately. But now we're going to start hearing not just that Jesus taught with authority, but we're going to start hearing his teaching, especially in his parable. But before we do that, Mark, as any good writer would do, stops and gives us a summary. So in verses 7 through 12, Mark gives us a thematic summary of the interactions Jesus had since his baptism. And he highlights his authority. We can't forget where we came from, right? It's, it could be hard to open up a book like Matthew and say, where are we? Where have we come from? So Mark gives us the review himself. So before we, before we even look at these verses today, let's briefly consider what we've seen from Jesus and how we've seen people interact with him. In Mark 1, 16-20, Jesus calls his first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, fishermen, who left all behind and obeyed the call to be fishers of men. Jesus here demonstrates his authority over the will of men. When Jesus calls, men obey. 
in chapter 1, 21 through 28, Jesus commands a demon to come out of a man, and the demon obeys him. The demon goes on to recognize Jesus' true identity as the Holy One of God. And Jesus demonstrates here his authority over demons, over the spiritual realm. In chapter 1, 40 through 45, Jesus heals a man plagued with leprosy. Jesus proves that when defilement meets him, he does not become defiled, but the defile becomes clean. Jesus demonstrates his authority over disease. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus heals a paralytic. And after healing him, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus demonstrates here that his authority is over sin. And he is able to forgive sin. At this point, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious order, begin to feel uncomfortable with Jesus. Chapter 2, 13 through 22, Jesus calls Levi, whom we know as Matthew. Levi is a tax collector, and Jesus says, follow me, be my disciple. Levi leaves everything behind and follows Christ. Jesus here demonstrates power to restore the broken, the sinful, the ostracized. If the man with leprosy had a disease that was skin deep, Levi was diseased in the soul. For Jesus, the religious outsider was welcomed into his inner circle. Jesus didn't just restore Levi, he enjoyed him. He feasted at his house in the company of a band of bandits. Jesus was doing something new. New wine in new wineskins. Old religion had no room in the relationships that Jesus was fostering. To come to Christ is to abandon everything and become a new creation. For the religious class, this was a grave mistake. Opposition to Jesus grew. In chapter 2, 21 through 3, 6, this is the apex of this section. Jesus declares himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, to our modern ears, that might sound small. But as we saw last week, he who is Lord over the Sabbath is Lord over all. Is Lord of creation. Jesus demonstrates here that his authority is divine authority. Jesus says, I am God. And he intends to use his divine authority for good. To restore 
to the world that which sin had stolen. This drove the scribes and the Pharisees crazy. And so they began to plot to kill Jesus. They thought that that way they would exercise authority over Jesus. But little did they know that this too fell under the authority of Christ. All along, Jesus is accompanied by this odd character, the crowd. The crowd is almost funny, laughable. The, the crowd is not after Jesus for Jesus. The crowd is after Jesus for the benefits he provides. Liberation, healing, food. The crowd somewhat stands ambiguous. I like him. I'll stay with him as long as it's convenience. The crowd are the observers. There's the inner circle, the disciples. There's the outer circle, the religious authorities. And then there's the crowd. The crowd is an important character here because if we're part of the crowd, we can't stay lukewarm, can we? We have to decide who Jesus is. We have to decide whether we're going to be banded with the Pharisees or if we're going to be accounted as one of his disciples. The crowd is always around Jesus. Now, our passage today is not different. In verse 7, we see that Jesus withdraws to the sea with his disciples. And who is there with him? The crowd follows right along. Now, notice in verse 8, what is the motivation of the crowd? You know, we saw right motivation earlier, haven't we? We've seen the motivation of the paralytic and his friends. They were filled with faith. We've seen the motivation of Levi, who wanted to enjoy Jesus. And upon being called by him, put a feast together for Jesus. What's the motivation of the crowd, though? Look at verse 8. When the crowd, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. But Jesus didn't come to do. He said back in Mark 1:38, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For this is why I came. Now, Jesus would eventually do, right? He would eventually give his life as a ransom for many. But the heart of Jesus' ministry was the, was the message, the proclamation of the gospel. At the heart of Jesus' ministry, there is a message. There is a message to be shared. And as the great crowd closes in, this is what he does. They come to see him and he feeds them, not with what they want, but with what they need. They feed them with the gospel. Jesus did much good. The crowd knew that if they 
could only touch him. They would be healed. So Jesus instructs his disciples to get a boat ready. So he could teach the crowds from a distance. Jesus was fully God, but he was enveloped in frail humanity. So he prudently sought to preserve his life. Why? Because his time had not yet come. The demons around Jesus could not keep silent before him. But unlike the crowd, they knew exactly who Jesus was, the Son of God. Interestingly enough, so far, Matthew, uh, Mark has told us that Jesus is the Son of God. And the demons have told us that Jesus is the Son of God. But the Pharisees and the scribes have not. The crowd has not. And his disciples have not. The first time a human agent says that Jesus is the Son of God, as we're being told, as we've been told since the beginning, is in chapter 15. As Jesus dies, a Roman soldier looks at him and says, Indeed, he is the Son of God. The demons knew all along because the demons knew Jesus from eternity past. The demons knew Jesus from before. The, Jesus, the demons knew Jesus from his exalted state in heaven. But Jesus didn't long for demonic recognition. So he would rebuke them and command them to be quiet. Now, this has been a good, helpful review. If you're new with us, Hopefully this helped you understand where we are, who some of the main characters of Mark are. But there is something new introduced in this review here. There's one element that is new, and I think it's very important, very relevant, because we're going to keep seeing this in Mark. We've seen Jesus teaching, and great crowds come to him from the region of Galilee and from Jerusalem, which is in Judea. But the crowd now comes from further and further away. Jesus' fame is expanding. Edomia is towards the south. During the time of exile, Edomia was inhabited by the Edomites. You can hear the names. They sound alike. Right? Th th these are not... These are not Jews, these are half-breeds. The area beyond the Jordan, so we've had people coming from the south. The area beyond the Jordan is towards the east. More people coming from there. And then you have Tyre and Sidon. And, and although these are territories within right, the land, within the promised land, th these are cities that were largely inhabited by Gentiles. And these cities are towards the north. So now you have south, east, and north coming towards the sea, Sea of Galilee, to hear Jesus. People are coming from all the areas to hear the gospel that Jesus 
proclaims. Jews, half-Jews, and Gentiles alike. This light, right, that was born in Jerusalem and was small, starting to expand. This little mustard seed that was planted and you could barely see it, it's starting to go grow. A little bit of yeast is causing the gold to rise. The nations are coming to Jesus. And this has been a promise all along. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servants, to rise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. What, what, is, what is God saying here through Isaiah? It's too small for my people to be only Jacob and Israel. God's goal all along was to redeem people from every nation for the glory of his name. So what does he say here? He says, I will make you, Israel, as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's the goal of Jesus' ministry, is to bring salvation to all people. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's great promise to Abraham through his seed, that is Christ. He would bless every nation. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. And friends, this is what Paul says in Galatians 3. We are his offspring. Salvation has come to us because Christ faithfully preached the gospel. And friends, friends, you want to attract the nations? You want people to come to Christ? No, we, we don't need fog machines and we, we don't need a, a fancy building and we don't, we don't need all these things. We need the gospel. Jesus didn't have any of these modern tools we have and yet the nations were coming to him this is why we keep our service simple right this is why we seek to worship the lord in a simple and humble way because we believe that the gospel is enough the gospel is sufficient friends the nations are coming to see christ and to know him. This past week, at our business meeting, we received an update from Mark and Vesta Souter. Mark and Vesta are a part of our church, and they're missionaries to the deaf peoples in the world. Mark told us of people coming to faith in Christ from West Africa, from Eastern Europe, and from the Middle East. And this has taken place only in the past six weeks or so. We're committed to praying for Mark and Vesta. We're committed to supporting them because they're committed to making the name of Jesus famous in all the earth. They're committed to carry on this ministry that Jesus begun of proclamation of the gospel. Friends, it is through the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus is made known. The message still today is come and see. Come and see the divine son. In his wonder, 
come and see the beauty of Christ. The knowledge of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea once we learn from Jesus the importance of proclaiming the gospel. This is the calling of every believer, the calling of every disciple. Let's consider now the gospel commission. Go and tell. So we've looked at the crowds, but our focus now shifts from the crowds to the disciples. Mark is working here from greater to lesser in numbers. Many in the crowd, only 12 disciples. But from lesser to great in purpose. The disciples were called by Christ. The crowd, they simply followed Christ. It's interesting that Mark, he was, um, tells us that Jesus called to him those whom he desired. He's drawing a distinction here between the crowd and the disciples. The crowd often got on the way of Jesus' ministry, but the disciples were the ministry themselves. And what was the response of the twelve as Jesus called those whom he desired? They came to him. This is how it works. Jesus calls, and we respond. Jesus' call is authoritative. When he calls us, he is not merely checking to see if we desire to respond. The call that Christ places on us is so deep in our hearts that not only does he tell us that he is calling us, he makes us desire to respond to his call. The call is deep. The call is, is, is spirit-empowered. And how would this gospel be known in all the earth? How will the earth one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God through the preaching ministry of the gospel first entrusted to the twelve disciples whom Jesus called Apostles. The number 12 is certainly not coincidental. 12 is actually not a common number in Jewish numerology. The number 12 is almost only associated with the 12 tribes. 12 Jewish tribes, 12 Jewish disciples. The number 12 here is a parallel to the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is recreating God's people. The ESV says that he appointed the 12. But the original term here literally says he made the 12. The word used here is the same word that we would find in the Greek translation of Genesis 1.1, where God creates the world. Commentator James Edwards says, to appoint is to select from an existing lot and to rise to a new status. 
but to make means to bring into existence. Jesus is is creating a new people. Jesus is creating a new people of God, not out of the religious and powerful class, but out of common men. Men that were filled with faith. Men like Simon and James and John. Common fishermen. But Jesus cared so much about them that he actually renamed them. They were part of Jesus' inner circle. They would have never been part of an inner circle in the religious circles. Men like Matthew, a traitor. Men like Simon, the zealot who hated men like Matthew. Simon, a political extremist who hated traitors. Men like Judas Iscariot, who stands as a reminder to us that mere proximity to Jesus does not mean love for Jesus. Our text tells us two things about the twelve. First of all, our text tells us that Jesus called the disciples to himself. Jesus called the twelve disciples to a relationship with him. Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is the means and Jesus is the end. Jesus is a means to himself. When Jesus calls us, he calls us to him. When Paul is helping the Ephesians work through sins that they're holding on to, he tells them, this is not how you learned Christ. Not from Christ, but Christ. What does Paul mean? He means this is not you learned as you have come to have a relationship with Christ. Jesus called the twelve to a relationship with him. Jesus is not a means to an end, friends. Jesus is the end himself. This is a good reminder for us, right? When we see those that need to grow in Christ-likeness in our church, we don't simply give them a book, tell tell them about a sermon. We give them ourselves. And we're able to say, with Paul, this is what Paul is trying to accomplish here, be imitators of me, as I imitate Christ. This is the Jesus model of Christian discipleship. Christianity is not primarily a religion of do's and don'ts. Christianity is, in its essence, a discipleship relationship with Christ. The goal of Christianity is not primarily adherence to certain codes and conduct and regulations. The goal of Christianity is Christ likeness the 12 disciples would spend three years with jesus in these three years they would learn from him in these three years they would learn him they would learn his religion they would learn his theology they would learn his morality but most important they would learn christ They will learn him. But also, our text 
helps us see that Jesus calls the disciples with a purpose in order to send them out. Christian discipleship is always directional. It needs to have an end. It needs to have a purpose. It is to equip others to proclaim Christ. Jesus, for three years, equipped the twelve to fulfill his great commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word apostle simply means sent one. And Jesus would send his apostles to carry out his message, the message of the gospel. They would carry it with power, and the same kind of power that Jesus exercised over demons and disease. Christ would give them authority. Did you hear that on the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore. Christ would give them authority so that these men would point to Christ himself, even to the point that they would ex exercise the same miraculous gifts as Christ. The apostles, the twelve, were able to perform miracles. We see that throughout the book of Acts. Why? Because these miracles vindicated them as true bearers of the message of Christ. Now, when Paul, speaking of the church in Ephesians 2, refers to the apostles, here's what he says. We are built on the foundation of, of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. As the apostles stand on the authority of Christ, and as they proclaim the message that they learn from Christ, the church is built. So what we see here in this making of the twelve really is the making of the foundation of the church. You know, I was looking at how yeast works, how sourdough works. And there is, I found out, there is a sourdough starter that has been going around for over 4,000 years. In other words, somebody... 4,500 years ago, made bread and saved the starter. And that bread that was eaten two, uh, for over 4,000 years ago can still be experienced today. It's the same line. Now, sourdough, right, changes flavor over time. The flavor is different. Certain things are different. But we can say that over 4,000 years ago, people ate bread from what is called the Egyptian yeast. And we can still experience the same yeast today. The yeast is still active. And it's in many places. 
Friends, this is what the ministry of the apostles is like. The ministry of the apostles is given to them. It's started, it's created by Christ. And this dough or this starter begins and bread is made. And people start experiencing this bread and this dough expands and this dough is shared. So you can go to restaurants in America and you can experience the Egyptian yeast. And it's the same yeast that people experienced over 4,000 years ago. And it grows and people hear about it. And people go to certain restaurants specifically because they have this yeast. But it's the same yeast. It's not special because it's been altered. Nobody cares about the sourdough that I started two weeks ago and already killed. Right? They care about this one. Because this one is proven. This one is ancient and it has survived time. It has made it through the years and why has it made it through the years because people taste it and they like it and they say don't change it keep it the way it is it is special because it is the way it is and this friends is the ministry of the apostles jesus has given it to them and they have entrusted it to men and men have entrusted it to other men in one generation at a time 2,000 years later, here we are. We don't need to start a new yeast. The one we received is good enough. Th there, is not, there is nothing we can do to make an yeast like the one that Christ has provided for us. His is still alive. Friends, it is this ministry, this apostolic ministry, that has come to us. It is this ministry, this apostolic ministry, the ministry of proclamation of Christ that we are today called to carry on. The same yeast, same starter. Did you notice at the end of the Matthew passage, Jesus promises to be with his disciples not until they die. Not until the apostolic age is finished. He promises to be with his disciples to the end of the age. This promise is not only for the original 12. This promise is for you and for me. It is Christ who empowers us to go and tell of his greatness. Evangelism does not rest on personal abilities, personalities, eloquence, or oratory skills. Evangelism that is powerful and accomplishes much rests on the promises of Christ. It rests on the promise that when we proclaim the gospel and we make disciples, Christ will be with us to the end of the age. This is a good reminder for us, right? No one can say, that they are adequate enough in evangelism. But friends, it's when we are weak and inadequate that God's power is made perfect. We cannot use the fact that we are not good at evangelism to not evangelize. Because 
not being good at it is actually a prerequisite. It is when we're not good that we run to Christ. And He empowers us with His Spirit. When we are weak, when we recognize our evangelistic shortcomings, we must come to Christ and be reminded, you promised to be with me. I just want to say a word of encouragement to you. Central Baptist Church, you are a church who cares about the lost. I see that in our prayer list as it is filled with names of people you desire to see saved. Come pray with us on Wednesday as we pray for the lost who know the wonders of Christ. I see that in the joy of people as they come over to FIT once a month to share the gospel with students who do not know Christ. Just yesterday, dozens of people came through our doors for the women's ministry clothes exchange. Many were invited to worship with us. Every other Monday, our food pantry meets the physical needs of our community as they also challenge them spiritually. But most importantly, week after week, we gather to sing songs that are rich in the gospel, read from the word of the gospel, pray before our Lord because of the gospel, and hear the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is at the center of everything we do. Friends, let us be encouraged. The Lord is working. Friends, let us be encouraged. The lost will come. And they will hear the gospel. And they will believe. Friends, we're jars of clay. We're nothing. But Christ, in His wisdom, has filled us with the immeasurable glory of the message of the gospel. But this message we proclaim first had to be accomplished. So briefly as we close, let us consider the gospel accomplished Christ alone. Our text ends with a strange, strange turn of events. Jesus returns to his home, probably the home of Peter, and the crowd again is with him. But then... We meet a new character, his family. His family comes not to encourage him, but to confront him. They wanted to seize him because they wanted to baker act him, for they believed that he was out of his mind. So far, we have only seen opposition to Christ coming from the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious order. We had only seen opposition from Christ from those who are antagonistic towards him. But now his family, his inner circle, is opposing him. And this theme we're going to keep seeing throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see that Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. But what kind of Savior would he be? He would not be a popular Savior. The crowds would leave him. His family would leave him. Even his disciples would forsake him. Christ came to be a savior, but he came to be a suffering savior. He would experience loneliness, abandonment, 
rejection, opposition. I don't know about you, but when I experience these things, I tend to feel discouraged. And when I am discouraged, I tend to fail accomplishing my goals. So much of my confidence is still derived from the approval and acceptance of men. So you remember my illustration in the beginning? There's confidence in numbers, right? Except for Jesus. Jesus did not put his confidence in numbers. Jesus knew that what he had to accomplish, he had to accomplish alone. As Jesus walked to the cross, even his closest disciples forsake him, betray him, deny him. Isaiah 53, verse 3, we read this earlier. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide his, their face, he was despised. And we, we esteemed him not. I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. It was necessary that Jesus would be cut off from the land of the living. It was necessary that Jesus would go alone. Because this gospel we proclaim had to be accomplished. And it was accomplished as Jesus took upon himself the cross on Calvary. Friends, the message of the gospel is the message of repentance and faith. Repentance in a sacrifice that was complete. The message of the gospel is a message of forsaking not Christ, but self. The message of the gospel is the message of abandoning, not Christ, but every confidence we have to accomplish that which Christ has already accomplished. The message of the gospel is the message that we are weak, too weak to save ourselves. But the good news is that Christ is the author and the accomplisher of our salvation. He took the cross. He took it alone. His family didn't go with him. His friends didn't go with him. Because it was only Christ who could die on that cross. It was only his life that was lived to perfection. It was only him who was the son of God. Spotless. Perfect. No one could go to the cross with him. And friends, the invitation of the gospel is the invitation to the kingdom of God. Repent and believe the gospel. For the kingdom of God is at hand. But before we could enter the kingdom of God, Jesus had to open the door to the kingdom. And as Jesus died, the kingdom of God is comprised of one man alone hanging on a cross. 
And as he breathed his last breath, he said, it is accomplished. The veil was torn in two. God was made accessible. And friends, it is through Christ, through his loneliness, through his suffering, through his pain, through the giving of himself, that we today can have the confidence to come before God. Friends, the gospel has been accomplished, and it is proclaimed to you today. Will you receive it? Will you come to Christ by faith? Will you believe in His finished work? Will you forsake yourself and embrace Christ? We cannot be like the crowds, indifferent, as long as Christ is doing what I want, I want Him. But at the moment that He calls me to do that which I don't want, I leave Him. No. We must come to Christ as, Ma- as Matthew did, leaving all behind and following Him. Today is the day that you're being called to believe the gospel. And if you believe the gospel, today is the day that you'll be saved. My prayer is that you will be saved today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the accomplishment of our salvation. Thank you, Lord, that his confidence was not in numbers. But his confidence was in the fact that he was accomplishing plans you had for him for us we pray father that today would be a day of salvation in this place that as we understand the sacrifice of christ in our place we would all place our confidence in him we pray father in the name of jesus amen